The Glenn Show is brought to you by the Manhattan Institute. Please consider becoming a paid subscriber at glennlowry.substack.com. As a subscriber, you will receive new episodes on Mondays instead of Fridays and get access to exclusive content, ticket pre-sales to live events, monthly Q&As with Glenn Lowry and John McWhorter, and other benefits. Your contribution will also help to fund grassroots initiatives that empower Black development across the country as we donate 10% of our profits to the Woodson Center. Thank you. Uh, hey there, Ralph. How you doing, man? I'm doing very well, sir. How are you? Doing well, thank you. Good morning to you. This is Glenn Lowry. You have tuned into The Glenn Show. We're sponsored by the Manhattan Institute for Policy Research in New York City, where I am John Paulson, senior fellow, and Will Ralph is my colleague, Raphael Mangual, who is my colleague at the Manhattan Institute. And he is, what, what are you now? You are senior fellow and head of research for the Policing and Public Safety Project at the Manhattan Institute and author of Criminal Injustice, uh, what the push for decarceration to de-policing gets wrong and who it hurts the most, a new book that's out that everybody should read. And I'm happy to be talking with you here. Hi, hey, Rolf, how you doing, man? I'm doing well. Uh, extremely happy to be on with you as I am uh, a huge fan of the show and your work. So this is uh, truly an honor. Uh, thank you. So what's the Manhattan Institute like as a place to work? You've been there for a while. I, I've only just signed on uh, recently and have yet to actually foot, set foot in the premises of the offices in uh, Manhattan of the Manhattan Institute now in my new capacity as a senior right. fellow. So, so I'm curious as to how you experience the place and what's going on there. Best job in the world, honestly. Um, I wake up every day and I am I'm just so surprised and relieved to be doing the work that I get to do where I get to do it. I mean, you know, you don't know this about me, but the Manhattan Institute was on my radar back when I was in college, when I first kind of got engaged in in these debates about policing and criminal justice. And, you know, that was one of the institutions whose work I first came across to the work of George Kelling and James Q. Wilson, John DeLulio. And, um, you know, so right around the time I was about 1920, uh, I kind of realized that, you know, professional baseball wasn't going to happen and I should start figuring out what I wanted to do with my life. And, uh, you know, I, I loved to argue. I loved, uh, you know, to to engage with with my peers. And I thought, well, hey, there are these things called think tanks and I, you know, maybe I should look into a career in one of those. And the Manhattan Institute just always appealed to me. I mean, for obvious reasons, one, I'm a, you know, born and raised New Yorker, you know, grew up in Brooklyn and, um, you know, just absolutely loved the city. And, and so that was a huge part of it. But, uh, you know, the Manhattan Institute, I always saw as kind of doing um, the really hard work of getting to the bottom of debates through the use of data and empiricism. And, and in a way that, you know, had a sort of special place for urbanism and understood the role that urbanism plays in the country. And um, yeah, I just wanted to be part of something like that. And so I, I got very, very lucky in that uh, while I was in law school, I got to intern at the Manhattan Institute and did some work that happened to catch the right people's eye and uh, was able to sort of shortcut what I expected to be a very long process of practicing law and, you know, sort of developing an expertise that I could eventually parlay into a career at a think tank and, and came to MI straight out of law school in 2015. And it's been just 
a, a really collegial place to work. I mean, you're surrounded by brilliant people. So you're, I mean, at least I was very, very intimidated at the outset. I mean, talk about, you know, uh, imposter syndrome. My, my first boss, Jim Copeland, you know, two degrees from Yale, one from LSE, and just, you know, one of the highest IQs of people I know. And it was just like, how am I supposed to impress, you know, people like this? How can I be a peer to someone like that? And I realized that very quickly that, you know, mentorship is just a huge part of the culture at MI. Um, you know, there was no real pride of authorship. People take you under your wing. They help promote your work. I mean, it, it really, truly is one of the best places to be. Did you have a, a political orientation that uh, leaned right of center? May I just ask uh, prior to yeah. coming into the MI? Yeah, for sure. Um, I'd say I, I became politically aware somewhat late in life, you know, I, I don't think it was that late, but if you look at you know high schoolers now, they're out marching, carrying signs, and you know, they seem to have it all figured out. I, I didn't really care about politics until I was about 19, 20 years old, my second year of college. Um, and it was really through this issue that I write about now that, that sort of sparked my interest and, and led me down the road of reading that would, you know, sort of eventually lead me to develop a kind of classical liberal sensibility. Um, you know, the, the thinkers that, that, that most appealed to me then and, and still appeal to me today, people like John Stuart Mill, um, John Locke, um, you know, more contemporary writers, uh, you know, 20th century, William F. Buckley, Tom Sowell. Um, folks like that really kind of helped me form my thinking on a lot of these issues. So yeah, I'd, I'd say I'm, I'm something of a conservatarian. Uh, you know, Charles Cook uh, coined that term to describe people who sometimes felt to the left of, of sort of, you know, the typical evangelical conservative that people think of when they use the term conservative, um, but to the right of, of you know, uh, the kind of left libertarians, uh, anarcho-capitalist types. So somewhere in that happy medium. Where'd you go to law school, Ralph? DePaul University in Chicago. I know it. I'm a Chicago-born. I remember DePaul. Yep. Yeah. I, I married a, a Chicagoan. My wife, uh, Joyanette, who is a, a charter school principal, works with Ian Rowe, actually, um, uh, opening up his, his new school in the Bronx. Uh, oh. She is originally from the west side of Chicago, Humboldt Park. And uh, we met when she was here in New York doing Teach for America. And she made very clear at the outset of our relationship that she wanted to move back to Chicago. So uh, at the time, I was getting ready to apply to law school. And I, I quickly added to Paul to the list about two nights before the deadline for the application. And when I got my acceptance, that's where I, I matriculated. And uh, little did we know we'd end up moving back to New York four years later. But, you know, I was going to say, you must be doing something right if you convinced her to uh, abandon Chicago. <laughs> I did. I did. Well, you know, I am uh, I'm a beneficiary of wearing my heart on my sleeve. And, and, and so she always knew from the very beginning how much I loved the work of the Manhattan Institute. I was always talking about it, always, you know, talking about how I wanted to do this one day. So when I got the job offer, it was um, it was it, it, a lot of the groundwork had already been laid. I didn't have to do too much convincing to get her to uh, you know, to agree to let me pursue this dream. So I'm a lucky man. Yes. Well, I'll bet you are. Okay. So the book. The book. Criminal Injustice. You have in, yes. in parentheses. There's a kind of irony there. Um, the natural response of many people to watching the uh, secular increase and in the numbers of people behind bars in the United States 
that took place from, let's say, 1980 to 2000, where, you know, you go from 500,000 to 2 million under lock and key on a given day, is that's a bad thing. That's mass incarceration. That's the mobilization of punitive resources by the state in response to the problem of maintaining public order that is unmatched by any other society, uh, democratic, wealthy, Northern European, et cetera, we compare. The United States is a vast outlier, 5% of the world's population, 25% of the people under lock and key, uh, three strikes and you're out, uh, you know, uh, massively punitive uh, state intervention with a huge racial disparity. Blacks are almost the order of magnitude more likely to be incarcerated and so on. How, how is that not just uh, obviously a bad thing? I mean, I, I can recite this case because I've made this case uh, in my yeah. own writing uh, in years past, and I haven't disavowed all of it. Uh, and I'm just wondering... You know, it, uh, I, I looked at uh, the interview you did with Trevor Noah uh, on The Daily Show, and I was watching his facial expression. I mean, and it was like, you know, come on, brother. You yeah. know, I mean, it was like he was I saying, come on, brother. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so I'm saying, I'm saying, now, come on, brother. Come on, what's up with that? <laughs> You're defending the prison industrial complex? Yeah, I mean, I don't think I would I would use that term, but um, <laughs> you, you know, so so there there are a lot of layers to this to this argument. So you know, the first one is whether punitive is the right word to fully describe the response that led to the uptick in incarceration in the United States. And you know, it's very easy for us to kind of look at these numbers, compare you know, look at these international comparisons. Say you know, compare the U.S. incarceration rate to you know, some other Western European democracies, you know, England, Wales, uh, Germany, France, and, you know, and, and come to the conclusion that we're just an overly punitive society. I'm just not sure that's right. I mean, even back during the uptick, um, it's it's been pretty consistently the case, for example, that only 40% of state felony convictions result in a post-conviction prison sentence. So the most common outcome of a conviction for a felony um, is not post-conviction incarceration. When you look at the people who actually do get incarcerated, they don't get incarcerated for very long. Um, you know, the median prison sentence in terms of time actually served in the United States is 16 months. Now, 16 months is a long time to be locked up, especially if you're used to freedom. Um, but when you consider the sort of crimes that, that most prisoners are actually incarcerated for, uh, as well as the sort of length and seriousness of their criminal histories, um, it actually doesn't seem all that punitive at all. And, you know, the criminal history point is really important because the, part of the narrative about incarceration in the United States is that we are a country that systematically denies people second chances, right? We have second chance month in the United States. The idea being that, you know, you have all these first time offenders who are just, you know, uh, getting locked up and the key getting thrown away over some minor nonviolent offense. You hear a lot about, you know, nonviolent drug offenders, for example. But if you look at the criminal histories of the typical person leaving a state prison today, you'll find that that individual has somewhere between 10 and 12 prior arrests and five and six prior convictions. These are not people who've been denied second chances, right? These are people who've gotten plenty of second chances and then some. 
the question then becomes, at what point is it immoral to continue to take risks with the lives and property and bodily integrity of the people that these individuals will very likely victimize if we continue to release them? And that's the concern that primarily motivates my work. Now, you know, on the punitive point, too, I think it's worth mentioning that one of the reasons we're such an outlier on incarceration is because we're such an outlier on really serious violent crime, right? And this is something that you know even the most progressive critic of incarceration in the U.S. will remember in the context of a different debate. That debate being gun control. You know, we, we consistently hear how much worse we are in terms of our our you know serious violence uh, rate compared to England or France or Germany, and and that actually goes a long way toward explaining why we have so many more people incarcerated, because the risk of failing to incarcerate people, especially after repeated criminal behavior, um, is more likely to be a murder committed with a gun here in the U.S. than it is in another part of the world. Um, and, And that's something that we have to control for. I mean, we also have to control for wealth, too, right? I mean, the United States is uniquely situated in the world as one of the wealthiest nations. Um, And so we have a lot of resources to dedicate to our criminal justice apparatus, to our police, to our court systems, to our, you know, forensics teams, all that stuff that, you know, helps make these cases and process them at a volume that can produce this kind of criminal activity. And despite all that investment, it is still the case that the vast majority of serious crime in the United States, A, doesn't get reported. And the vast majority of the crimes that do get reported don't get solved. They don't result in an arrest. But if you just look at the violent index felonies that are tracked by the FBI, only about 17 to 18 percent are cleared in a given year. Right. And, and again, when you look at the statistic that only 40 percent of state felony convictions result in a prison sentence, we're not actually incarcerating a huge share of the people who are committing the most serious crimes. And, you know, if, if we're going to continue down the road of the international comparisons, too, I think it's worth noting that a lot of countries around the world, even ones that we're unfavorably compared to, are just as, if not more, punitive on many interesting measures. So in in the book, I give the example of Germany, which actually sentences a higher proportion of those convicted of first-degree murder to life in prison than does the U.S. I also give the example of the United Kingdom, where the mandatory minimum sentence for illegal firearm possession is five years, of which you can be expected to serve three and a half years. Now, that's something that's regularly met with probation sentences today. People are getting diverted for those sorts of crimes left and right in the United States. So, you know, we just have a lot more of the kinds of violence that informs these decisions because that's the risk that we're trying to minimize. And if you just look at the data on violence and how concentrated it is, the U.S. is unfortunately home to just many, many more pockets of serious concentrated violence. And so I do this analysis in the book where, you know, I I take a, a handful of neighborhoods in four American cities and you get uh, a, a 0.3% of the combined population of England, Wales, and Germany. And yet you have in those handful of neighborhoods of just four American cities, 10% of the homicide seen in all three of those countries, which is, you know, I, I think uh, really important to contextualize why our incarceration rates are so high. Um, and, and I know there were a couple of other points that you raised there that I'm, I'm forgetting in this response. So, Well, uh, let me see if I understand. Uh, we are only apparently an outlier. Uh, in fact, um, we, if you look carefully at the comparisons between countries, have a lot more violent crime and a conditional on the level of crime. Uh, we're not 
at, at least not in every respect, more punitive than some of our uh, our uh, countries that we compare ourselves to. Um, but uh, I want to ask, uh, in the spirit of uh, friendly uh, devil's advocacy here, is prison the answer? You, you, you're putting a lot on incapacitation. Don't they yep. teach us? teach us about deterrence, they teach us about rehabilitation, and they teach us about retribution. Uh, back in the day, when I was inveighing against mass incarceration, I was very uh, concerned with the politics of retribution, with the idea that criminals would be painted as these demonic figures and that people would be riled up and given a false sense of security through the expression of punitiveness uh, uh, through our politics and our policy. But then when we actually looked at the effect of prisons, uh, you know, crime is criminogenic. This is one of Bruce Western, the sociologist at Columbia University who works on criminal justice issues from a left of center point of view is one of his principal points. You actually make people worse, less fit. They don't stay. You make that point yourself. The average length is two years or so of a prison sentence. So uh, people are back on the streets. They're connected to other people. They go into communities. The character of life in those communities is affected by what is going on inside the prisons. Uh, People are hardened in their attitudes uh, and whatnot. Uh, a certain culture is fueled that is, uh, um, you know, uh, not healthy for uh, the youngsters who are growing up around it and all like that. So uh, even if you're right to stress that there is more violent crime, which requires a response, why is it so obvious that locking more people up is the appropriate response? Yeah, I think the best answer to that question is to lean into the incapacitation point because prison is the best and really the only way to reliably prevent the sort of crimes that we're worried about being committed in the absence of this kind of response, right? Uh, you know, there's a lot of talk about rehabilitation in the United States. And, uh, you know, that is certainly something that we should continue to pursue and invest in. But I, I think the most serious scholars will tell you that if you read the literature honestly, what you will be forced to conclude is that we don't really know how to reliably rehabilitate the typical prisoner in the United States. Um, and certainly we don't know how to do that at scale. Again, you know, we have 1.9 million people uh, under lock and key in a, on a given day in this country, that's a lot. Um, the idea that we have ready, deployable rehabilitation programs that will reliably reduce the risk to, you know, a, a level of comfort that that, that everyone is okay with um, if we're going to pursue the sort of mass uh, scale decarceration that people want to pursue, um, I, I just don't think that exists. And so, you know, rehabilitation is one of those things that, you know, yes, it's one of the four sort of just, you know, penological justifications for incarceration, but it's not one that we figured out. And so until we do that, I think we owe it to communities um, to provide the protection that is associated with the removal of criminal actors, particularly high rate offenders and offenders who pose a high risk of committing serious violence from the street for as long as possible. Um, the deterrence point, I think, is certainly important, generally, general deterrence. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of research that shows, for example, that, you know, simply set, giving someone a, a sentence that's six months longer or a year longer isn't going to reduce their likelihood to reoffend. you know, compared to the person who gets the shorter sentence. Um, 
that's true. But again, it's, you know, that doesn't, that, that leaves aside the point of incapacitation, right? That, you know, if that person's committing 10 index felonies a year, that extra six months means that, you know, the community that they would go to is spared five of those serious crimes. Um, you know, but the general deterrence point, I think, is also very real. I mean, if you really raise the transaction cost of criminal behavior a significant degree, where the difference is not just six months or a year, you can actually, you know, reduce crime pretty significantly. I think one of the best studies on this is the study of the three strikes regime in California uh, done by uh, Heeland and Tabrock in 2007. And what they find is that there is a 17 to 20 percent reduction in the likelihood of a rearrest for somebody who has two strikes compared to similarly situated offenders with zero strikes or no or one strike. Um, that's that's a meaningful difference. Now, you know, we can argue about the, the wisdom of three strikes. Maybe three strikes isn't the right number. Maybe it's five. Um, you know, but as I, I say in the book, I mean, my the main concern driving my work are the just the terrible crimes that are committed by people who have been given many, many, many bites at the apple, individuals who have proven time and again through their repeated criminal conduct that they have no intention whatsoever of playing by society's rules. You know, I, I, I open the book with the story of, um, of a woman in Chicago who was murdered. Um, she was caught in a drive-by shooting. Um, and it is one of the most tragic things you'll ever see. It was caught on video. You know, she's holding her one-year-old daughter and, um, you know, here comes this car and the passengers open fire. She takes off, is wounded almost immediately, collapses with her daughter still clinging to her and, you know, essentially bleeds out in the street, is dragged to a hospital in front of her one-year-old daughter and, uh, is pronounced dead. Now the shooting was caught on video, so they were able to make uh, an arrest. The, the woman's name was Brittany Hill, just 24 years old. Now, the one of the defendants charged in that murder was a guy named Michael Washington. He had nine prior felony convictions, Glenn. Nine. One of them was for second degree murder. Another one was uh, the result of a, a, an attempted murder charge that was pled down to aggravated assault. I mean, you know, this is someone that I think the average American reads this story and says, what is he doing out on the street? And they're surprised and they're shocked. And what I want people to understand is that that surprise and that shock is misplaced because this is a regular outcome of how we do criminal justice in the United States. I know we hear a lot about the punitive outcomes. I know we hear a lot about the Khalif Browders of the world, but that is not the typical experience. And so, you know, we have to understand what the risk is that we're trying to mitigate. Now, you know, yes, it is true that for some subset of offenders, the experience of prison can be criminogenic. It can make them worse off um, insofar as they will reoffend at a higher rate than they otherwise would have if they were diverted. Um, but, but to me, that doesn't obviously lead to the conclusion that we should decarcerate. And, and there are a couple reasons for that. One is that, you know, as you know, uh, I mean, I'm, you're the economist here, but you know, if you're trying to assess what the effect of a given treatment is, in this case, exposure to incarceration, you, you want to uh, figure out a way to create a natural experiment, right? Because that decision is never random. Right? There are good reasons that people who get incarcerated are put in prison. And there are good reasons that people who are diverted from the system are diverted. And so, you know, it, it's, it's very hard to just look at who goes to prison and compare them to who doesn't because there may be factors that we're not, you know, catching up on. And so the literature has developed, uh, you know, with these random judge assignment studies, right? So, you know, essentially what you do is you sort of, 
look at a, a population of offenders who are on the margins of incarceration, people whose whose conduct is not so serious that it's obvious that they're going to go to prison, but people whose conduct is not so minor that it's obvious that they're going to get diverted. And then you look at the leniency and the severity of the judges in that jurisdiction who are randomly drawing these cases. And if you compare the outcomes of similarly situated uh, defendants who are on the margins of incarceration, uh, who draw harsh judges and are incarcerated to the outcomes of those who draw lenient judges and are diverted, you do see higher rates of reoffending for those who are exposed to incarceration. But the conclusions that we can draw from that literature are limited because there's a difference between someone who's on the margins of incarceration and the typical prisoner in the United States today. Right. The, the, the typical prisoner in the United States today is much more likely to be a higher risk proposition when you're talking about release than the people that are captured by these studies. And so I think we make a serious error by grafting those findings onto the broader debate as if we can conclude as if those studies justify the conclusion that mass decarceration for its own sake is, is a, a, an endeavor that comports with you know, the majority of the of the public's concerns about public safety. And, you know, the, the last thing I'll say is on the retribution point, you know, I'm not a retributivist at heart. I mean, this is, it's the, the bottom of, of the list of things that, you know, I care about. Um, that said, I do think it's important for society's desire uh, to achieve retribution to be satiated because I don't want to live in a world in which you get this kind of, you know, death wish culture of vigilante justice, which I think predominates in a lot of America's highest crime neighborhoods. People are essentially, you know, taking justice into their own hands. Oh, you stole from me. Well, we're going to settle this, not in court, but I'm going to pull up on you when you're not expecting it. You're going to get caught lacking and I'm going to open up. And, you know, I, I don't want to live in that world. I don't want that to be a more common thing than it is. And I think that if Society is satisfied that the criminal justice system is appropriately responding to terrible criminal conduct. One, backlashes are going to be less likely and backlashes are, are, are I agree, are not good. But two, you're going to minimize the chances of vigilante violence. And, and that's something that I think is, is good. Okay. Three strikes is okay with you, huh? You say a study finds that if a person has two strikes and is susceptible to a third, that their behavior looks different than a randomly drawn person because the threat of that third strike has an incentive effect. And I'm thinking 25 years to life for three felony convictions, uh, I'm going to give the prison gerontologist a lot of business. I'm, I'm, I'm going to give the person who's incarcerated at the age of 60 and is much less likely to offend, uh, you know, I'm still confining him because I'm, I'm following through on my 25 years to life commitment for three strikes. For every case of the one that you open your book with horrible, horrible victimization of a person by a repeat offender, can I not find a case of somebody uh, who at the age of 19 sitting in the backseat of a car where the two guys go in to rob a convenience or a filling station and they shoot the attendant? Now he's got a felony murder rap when the car gets pulled over and he's sent away for life without the possibility of parole or whatever. Can I not find a, a similar? I don't, can, I don't know if you can find as many, um, but but the thing to remember that these are sentencing enhancements that the prosecutors have discretion to trigger. Right. I mean, this is part of the plea bargain process. The idea that everyone who's eligible 
for a strike will receive a strike if arrested and charged with with uh, the sort of conduct that, that if pursued to the full extent of the law would result in that. I mean, that's okay. just very, very unlikely. I mean, the vast majority of criminal convictions come via plea bargain and a central aspect of those plea bargains involve the downgrading or dropping of charges altogether. And and so it would seem to me that if you actually dug into it, what you'd find is that the vast majority of people who are, you know, seeing their third strike have really seen about six or seven up until that point before that that lever's actually pulled. You know, and, and you do make a good point about, you know, age being a, a factor because it is true that people become much less likely to reoffend in older age, which is one of the reasons why it becomes I think more important to take full advantage of the incapacitation benefits of criminal offenders who are repeating their offending patterns at, at a young age, you know, and keep them incarcerated until they get to that point where you start to see the drop off. But it's also important to remind people that even for older offenders, um, while the recidivism rate drops, it doesn't zero out. It doesn't come close to zeroing out. And if you look at the Bureau of Justice Statistics longitudinal studies on recidivism, over a 10-year period, you're looking at recidivism rates well over 50% for every single age group they track except for 65 and over. But for 65 and over, it's still significant. It's like, you know, somewhere in the range of 35 to 40%, which is not nothing. Um, yeah, I, I just recently um, started writing an essay that, that, that I'm almost done working on. And one of the cases that I talk about was uh, the, the case of Marceline Harvey that was covered by the New York Times. This was an 83-year-old parolee. Who is now charged with murder again um, after being paroled in 2019 for a murder that this person was convicted of in 1985, which came after being paroled for a murder this person was convicted of committing in 1963. And so, you know, there are there is such a thing as life course persistent criminality there. You know, and, and in today's day and age where, you know, you can use a gun, it doesn't take a lot of strength or testosterone to pull a trigger. Um, and and so, you know, again, the risk definitely goes down. We should keep that in mind. That should inform our sentencing decisions for sure. Um, but it doesn't zero out. That's important to remember. So, yeah, I mean, look, you know, three, maybe three is the wrong number. Maybe it's five, you know, maybe 25 to life is the wrong amount. Maybe it's 10 to 15. But we clearly have to do more to to incapacitate people who are posing a real risk to the safety of those that live in the communities that they're going to spend their time in. Because if you just look at crime in the United States, it's overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly committed and driven by people who have very, very lengthy criminal histories. I mean, the city of Chicago, look at the, there's a study done by the University of Chicago Crime Lab. They looked at people charged with either shootings or homicides in 2015 and 2016. The average person charged with one of those offenses had 12 prior arrests. 20% of them had more than 20 prior arrests. It's hard for me to feel bad about someone with 20 prior arrests facing a third strike, um, especially when the risk looks the way it does in cities like Chicago, Philadelphia, Indianapolis, Louisville. You know, places of concentrated violence where it's damn near impossible to go about your everyday life if you were just a law-abiding person, where it's damn near impossible to avoid the, the pull of street violence if you're a kid growing up just trying to go to school and, and play a sport and, and just be left alone. You know, very few people have a sense of what that's like, um, you know, to resist that sort of pressure, the, what it's like to live on that kind of island where, you know, 
you're the only 15 year old on your block who's not really so, involved. so here's the argument excuse me for interrupting ralph yeah uh, i'm still in the devil's advocacy mode and sure. uh, okay we have a problem we have a problem of public uh disorder who pays the price for the disorder the people who can't afford to protect themselves by moving away or building walls or whatever so that's going to be poor people and minority people disproportionately we have heterogeneity amongst the uh, potentially offending population, by which I simply mean some people are bad people. That is, they're bad actors. They're doing stuff that's hurting other people. When we catch them, we ought to confine them so that they don't hurt anybody. This is what I'm hearing you say. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and the devil's advocate reply to that is, okay, you're confining them, but you're not actually fixing them. They eventually get back out. Uh, is what you're doing really helping or not? And you're saying it's at least helping to the extent that the guy who's confined can't hurt anybody else, at least not anybody else outside of prison. Crime goes on inside of prison as well, but that's a second, sure. second order effect. Um, and um, what me and this devil's advocate boat wants to say is, yeah, but that's not a solution. That's a Band-Aid. Uh, I think of the war on drugs. I think of, you know, we're going to find people who are trafficking in the illicit substances and we're going to punish them as a way of trying to extirpate the trade. But I lock one up and another guy comes down on the block. I don't actually stop the trade. I haven't dealt with the underlying structural phenomena that's generating, in this case, trafficking in illicit substances. Um, all I've done is uh, I've got this musical chairs game where I'm, I'm taking people off the street. Somebody else is coming in to take their place. The underlying uh, socioeconomic cultural thing that's driving the phenomenon hasn't, hasn't shifted. Uh, likewise here, I mean, uh, is it broken homes? Is it failed education? Is it lack of economic opportunity? Is it geographically segregated communities that are kind of closed in on themselves? Uh, is it gangs? Is it guns? Uh, is it a hip hop culture that uh, lionizes certain ways of uh, acting? I'm not addressing any of that by building more prisons and confining these people. So there's an illusion here. So goes this devil's advocate sure. argument. You th you're not really treating uh, the thing. And there are deleterious negative consequences. And, and by the way, those people who did those crimes are also people, too. Their welfare should count in our sure. calculation. We can't just throw them on a dustbin of human debris and forget about them. We can't just clang the jail's door shut and, and wipe our hands and, and pretend as if we are somehow doing justice that's not justice so yeah no i think what that's, about that? that's a fair that's a fair it's a fair point it's an argument i've i've heard um but you have to stop the bleeding right it, so what if it's a band-aid are you going to let the patient bleed out because you haven't figured out what's causing the wound um you know when you see a, a house on fire you don't say well let's you know before we put this out let's you know let's evaluate the you know structural integrity of the electrical system that may have caused this and you do that later but you have to stop the bleeding you owe it to these communities to stop the bleeding you owe it to the four-year-old who is now being forced to watch tv on the floor rather than on the comfortable couch for fear that a bullet might come through the window and take their yeah. head off before they've gotten to kindergarten yeah you know, so 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 that's answer number one. Okay, you have to stop the bleeding. So what if it's a bandage? So what if it's a bandage? It helps. It it helps. It that means something. That matters. How'd you sleep last night? I slept like a baby, and I have Cozy Earth to thank for this by providing the softest, most luxurious, and best temperature regulating sheets on the planet. 
Cozy Earth sheets are made from premium 100% viscose from bamboo, which means they're super soft, lightweight, and temperature regulating so you'll sleep more comfortably year round. Never worry about hot flashes again. Cozy Earth was created to enhance people's lives by offering the softest, most luxurious, and responsibly sourced bedding in the world. With over 5,000 five-star reviews, they have never wavered on that promise. Cozy Earth Bamboo Linen Sheet Set is so amazing, it was featured as one of Oprah's favorite things in the year 2018. Whether it's their best-selling luxury sheets, ultra-comfortable loungewear collection, or new bath collection, you'll absolutely love shopping at Cozy Earth. Our audience can save 35% on Cozy Earth. So get cozy now. Go to CozyEarth.com forward slash Glenn and be sure to enter Glenn at the checkout to save 35%. All backed by a 100 night sleep guarantee. That's CozyEarth.com forward slash Glenn. Now, in terms of addressing the underlying root causes, you know, yeah, those are important. But one, I think we don't yet fully understand what those root causes are. I think there are a lot of people who mistakenly argue that, you know, the sort of violence that, that I'm talking about is, is a function of socioeconomic factors like poverty and unemployment and inequality. Um, I think that's wrong. I don't, I don't think the evidence supports that one bit, at least not, you know, to the extent that, that it's clear. And even if it is clear, I, I still don't think we have an obvious solution to that. I mean, how many trillions of dollars have we spent on anti-poverty programs over the years? Doesn't seem to be helping North Philadelphia at the moment. Doesn't seem to be helping the West Side of Chicago at the moment, right? You know, yeah, rehabilitation, affecting the culture. I mean, how, how many people truly believe in their heart of hearts that the government knows how to change culture for the better, that it even knows what the right culture is to begin with, let alone how to implement that? You know, there, there, it is very easy, I think, for, for decarceration advocates to rest on this idea that, hey, well, you're not addressing this thing, which like, yeah, okay, I'm not. But do you know how to fix that problem? A problem that's proven to be intractable, that is a common denominator across societies, across human history? Because no one's been able to figure it out yet. What I do know is that over the course of the 1990s, cities like my home city of New York cut crime an enormous amount and that those benefits really, really mattered. They really helped. I mean, we went from 2,262 murders in 1990 to 292 in 2017. That is a massive 90 plus percent decline. Did we figure out how to solve poverty, how to solve unemployment, how to solve inequality, how to fix the culture? I have yet to read that story of New York's crime decline. No, what we did was we invested in police, we invested in our criminal justice system, and when people were caught doing terrible things, which they were much more likely to be caught doing as a result of our investments in police, we took them off the street and we kept them there for a while. And that gave these communities the room to breathe, the room to grow, the room to fortify themselves 
against future crime increases, even in the face of eroding all of those institutions that provided those public safety benefits, which is one of the reasons the sky hasn't quite fallen yet in New York. Okay, just on that point, uh, don't we see a decline in homicides uh, across the board in American cities over that same period of time? And how do you know that what was being done distinctively in New York City, whether it be policing or otherwise, quote unquote, caused the um, remarkable uh, decline in uh, homicide victimization that you call attention to here? Yeah, well, one, I think New York served as a model. So lots of other jurisdictions around the country followed in New York's footsteps in many ways. And so it's not at all surprising that we started to see the homicide decline uh, that New York saw catch on in other parts of the country. You know, lots of jurisdictions were experimenting with, you know, uh, harsher crime control policies, things like three strikes, things like truth and sentencing, more investments in police. You had the 94 crime bill added, you know, nearly 100,000 police officers to American streets. That wasn't just here in New York. You had the development of CompStat here in New York that, you know, was adopted by police departments across the country. Um, but it is true that in the early 1990s and through the mid 1990s, New York's decline far superseded that of any other jurisdiction in the country. It outpaced everywhere else and it lasted longer. Um, it, it has proven to be much more resilient, this model, um, which was bought into, I think, in a way that just, you know, hasn't been. I mean, you know, Philadelphia just broke an all time homicide record last year. Chicago hit a number on homicides last year that it hadn't seen since 1995. Um, you know, Indianapolis, all time homicide record. Louisville, all time homicide record. You know, uh, so. Yeah, I mean, the, the, these things matter. But, you know, I mean, e even left wing outlets like, you know, the Sentencing Project, for example, put, you know, 25% uh, of the crime decline over the course of the 1990s in the U.S. Um, uh, at the lap of incarcerations buildup. Even they admit, hey, incarceration seems to be responsible for somewhere in the range of 25% of our nation's homicide decline over, over the decade of the 1990s. That's a that's a major benefit, especially when you consider the fact that that sort of problem is not one that is evenly distributed, right? I mean, we, we talk about crime in the U.S., crime in New York, crime in Chicago, as if it's, yeah. you know, you know, we talk about it in the aggregate if it's, as if it's experienced in the aggregate. But you know as well as I do that the vast majority of any jurisdiction in the country is as safe as the safest places in the world. But we failed to appreciate, I think, in these debates is how hyper-concentrated both geographically and demographically crime really is, particularly serious violent crime like shootings, homicides, aggravated assaults. Um, you know, in New York City, for example, a minimum, this is a minimum, of 95% of all shooting victims every single year for which we have data, which goes back to 2008 are either black or Hispanic, almost all of them are male. A minimum, that is one of the starkest, most persistent racial disparities that you will ever see in the criminal justice data sphere. And it's even more stark because it, it's not just all blacks or Hispanics, it's really blacks or Hispanics between the ages of, you know, say 15 to 25 that account for the majority of these. Um, you know, geographically in, in New York City and really in any city in the US, about three and a half to 4% of street segments are gonna see about 50% of all violent crime. Right. So when we talk about, you know, the, the sort of downside risk of incarceration or when we talk about the benefits of the crime decline, we're talking about benefits that inured primarily to the betterment of very, very narrow slices of our communities. The slices of our communities that needed those things the most because they were suffering the brunt of that crime problem to begin with.
Um, and, and so it's, you know, it, it's, it's an even more pronounced victory um, by virtue of the fact that it, it, it uniquely benefited the least advantaged of us. Okay. Let's talk about policing. Um, I saw you had a piece that's been much noticed with uh, the uh, legendary uh, police uh, official, Bill Bratton. Uh, you're there in New York City where Bratton was commissioner at one time, where Ray Kelly was commissioner. I can remember Kelly coming up to Brown to give a lecture in, I think, 2013 mm -hmm. or so, and being yeah. shouted down by people because of stop and frisk. There was all this furor about stop and frisk, zero tolerance, broken windows, all of these policing theories. Uh, New York City has been a laboratory. Uh, what do you think the police have been getting right uh, in uh, the... Uh, uh, amidst all of this controversy and demands for reform and agitation of, for defunding the police and concerns about police brutality and state violence and the uh, perpetrated by police officers, what are what are police getting right? And and uh, what's wrong with the defund the police argument uh, from your point of view? You say decarceration, de-policing. These are the things you're against. Uh, what would you do about policing? So, yeah, it's a, it's a big question. I mean, I think that what police have gotten largely right over the, the years, over recent history, is they have learned to use data to inform their deployment strategies. And that has allowed them to concentrate their resources disproportionately in the areas and communities that need them the most. Um, you know, I am old enough to remember, although I am still a young man, um, when the sort of main critique of American policing was that it wasn't responsive enough to black crime, right? Uh, public enemy 911 is a joke. Um, you know, Jay Cole's out here making references to, you know, how quickly police respond to 911 calls in white neighborhoods. It still prevails today, that notion. Um, and so, you know, police responded to those concerns and, and they used data to make the most of their resources. And we now live in a world in which the Upper West Side of Manhattan, you know, isn't getting as much attention as Brownsville, Brooklyn, and that's a good thing. Um, they also professionalized, and, and that that is, I think, one of the most important and understated developments. I mean, policing became a professional institution, not just a blue-collar city job, and that, that was reflected in outcomes. Um, it was also reflected in, um, you know, the, 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 the way in which police carried themselves in the field. They become they became much more uh, likely to uh, not use force, for example, in, in situations where force was unwarranted. I mean, look at, you know, the NYPD, 1971, I think they shot and wounded 220 some odd people. You know, now they fire their weapons at maybe a dozen people in a given year. You know, the, the amount of people that, that are killed by the departments in the single digits, and that's been the case for, for many, many years now. That's a major development. Many more people are taken into custody, even armed suspects, um, you know, with with very little incident. And, and I think that is a, a major improvement. Now, you know, it's interesting because those are the things that the defunders kind of seize on. This is their main critique. The police use of force, police violence is too common. Um, this is what drives their concerns. And, you know, when you ask me 
what's wrong with defunding the police? I mean, my brain almost uh, short circuited <laughs> because I, I don't know where to start. Everything, <laughs> everything is wrong with it. It is, you know, uh, an idea that is proposed, um, it, you know, in contravention of everything that the literature says, of everything that we know about what increasing police presence, about what increasing investments in policing produces. And that's, that's crime declines. I mean, every single study of increasing police physical presence in an area shows declines in crime in that area. Every single study of, of any merit that shows, you know, that, that looks at the effect of investments in police shows significant returns on those investments. Um, and, and again, those are returns that are going to inure primarily to the benefit of the least advantaged communities. I mean, there was a study uh, that was published last year by Morgan Williams and Aaron Chalf and a few other economists and they found that the addition of every single of just one police officer um, in the country would abate 0.1 homicide. Um, so one homicide for every police officer added to the beat. Um, but the effects were twice as large uh, for black Americans than they were for white Americans. Um, that's an important point. You know, policing has become one of the few institutions that is extremely responsive to one of the most important social problems facing um, low-income minority communities. And, and you know, we eschew those benefits uh, at our peril. Um, you know, the idea that we ought to deny these communities the benefits of placing the most obvious form of a capable guardian uh, on the street to reduce crime is just indefensible to me uh, in every way, morally, uh, but also just empirically, if, if you you know are, are being honest about what the data says. Um, so, yeah, it's just an incredibly misguided uh, idea. And, you know, the, the fact that it is proposed in light of, you know, these cases of our, you know, admittedly terrible police violence is really frustrating because that argument pretends that those cases are representative of the institution and they're not. You know, uh, there was a, a survey that came out a couple of years ago, uh, sort of at the height of everything uh, post-George Floyd. I think it was like some significant portion of self-identifying liberal Americans thought that like somewhere between 1,000 and 10,000 unarmed blacks were killed by police in a given year, which is absolutely insane because the reality is that the number is right around 12 to 15, you know, sometimes as high as 25 in a given year, which is a very, very different story. I mean, people just have it in their head that you know, violence, particularly deadly violence, is a likely outcome of a police citizen encounter or, or particularly of an enforcement encounter. And that that likelihood is is much, much higher if, if the individual is black. And the reality is, is that police use of force of any kind, you know, deadly or not deadly, is an extremely rare occurrence. You know, if, if you just look at how often police fire their weapons, I, I estimated based on 2018 data that um, there were a little over 3,000 purposeful police shootings that year. Sounds like a lot. That's eight a day. That's um, in New York City. We, no, no, just in the country. Oh. In the country. You know, Is that we right? get, we, only yeah, 3,000? Only 3,000 in the, in the country. I mean, you know, we only about 900 or so people, 950 people were killed that year by police. I mean, I say only, I mean, obviously any one person killed, you know, is, is a tragedy. But the idea that this is a common outcome, police made 10.3 million arrests that year. Yeah, That's the use of deadly force in like 0.03% of those arrests. And non-deadly yeah. force is not much more likely. 
You know, I noticed that in Roland's, uh, Roland Fryer, the economist, the Harvard economist who's done uh, path-breaking work, uh, data out of Houston, Texas, trying to estimate the racial effect on police using deadly force. And uh, he finds uh, small uh, but or zero differences between uh, black and white and the likelihood that police would use deadly force. But it's also the case that the overall right. likelihoods are very, very small numbers. I mean, they're right. you know, 0.001 kind of numbers. Yep. So uh, there is that. But Roland also finds that in the use of force short of deadly force, that there is a statistically significant 25% or so more likely that the uh, force short of deadly force throwing people against cars, cuffing them, uh, using a, a baton or whatever. Right. Uh, and he's very concerned about that. He thinks that that is the source of some of the, the uh, you know, poor relations between minority communities and police uh, that that we see um, lack of cooperation with police and and trying to resolve uh, crimes and so on. So what do you say about that, about a culture in policing that seems to uh, treat uh, with less dignity and respect uh, citizens who are of color whom they encounter and so on? Nothing to that? Yeah. No, I think there's obviously something to that, something that we should worry about. But it, again, it's a problem that has to be viewed in context. You mentioned how rare of an occurrence police shootings were. Yeah. Um, and, and while lesser uses of force are much more common than police shootings, they are still very, very rare. Um, so there's one study in the book that I think illustrates this really well. Um, it's a study that looks at a million calls for service across three police departments, uh, uh, one in, in North Carolina, one in Arizona, and one in Louisiana. Those million calls for service resulted in 114,000 criminal arrests over a two-year period. Police used any force whatsoever in less than 1% of affecting those arrests, which is on par with the data that's reported by departments around the country. Right. So even non-deadly uses of force, less serious uses of force, is still a very, very rare occurrence. Now, it matters that when it does occur, there is uh, a statistically significant, significantly higher likelihood that it will be used against a black subject as compared to a white subject in a way that there does not seem to be an obvious explanation that's race neutral for why. Um, but it doesn't necessarily mean that every single one of those are the result of racial animus on the part of the officers engaging in that action, right? It could be that these officers, you know, at least some of them are working in high crime areas and as by virtue of their prior experience are just more worried about you know, uh, a suspect resisting if he fits a certain profile. And so they're just much more likely to go hands on earlier in the encounter out of out of, you know, what they call statistical bias. Right. Um, as opposed to, uh, you know, just actual animus uh, based on race. Now, that's not to excuse it. It still matters. And it matters for precisely the reason that Roland points out, which is that this is going to inform how communities feel about this institution. And if you want them to cooperate, if you want to sort of, you know, help minimize the, the, the um, uh, prevalence of the no snitching ethic, you know, it, it really matters when you perpetuate um, the kind of ideas that some people have in their heads about what police what a police officer's presence means in a, in a low income minority community. So yeah, it's something that we should be concerned about. It's something that we should address, but it's a problem that we shouldn't overstate. And it's a problem that 
does not justify the kind of dismantling of this institution that people are proposing in response to its existence. There are, there are just better ways to go about this. And it's important that we acknowledge the significant amount of progress that's been made on this front. You know, um, that it matters that police are significantly less likely to use force against anyone of any race or creed um, today than they were 20 years ago. What I think is unfortunate is you don't see the institution getting any credit for that, right? I mean, if you just look at the intensity of the protests, you know, outside New York City precincts in the wake of George Floyd's murder, um, you know, you'll find just as much intensity as you would have found in 1968 um, yeah. in the city of Chicago, um, you know, even though the institution has become so much better on this front. How do you explain that? Uh, what accounts for the... Um, uniform, in my experience, uh, posture of African-Americans, especially looking at the law enforcement issues, we got to give our kids the talk. We, we have mm -hmm. to make a point of training the kids so that they know what to do, because an encounter with a police officer is intrinsically a dangerous thing. You're a black man, you could lose your life. On the statistics that you're calling attention to, that's preposterous. It's preposterous mm -hmm. that a person, in virtue simply of being black, should fear a police officer if they pull them over for a speeding ticket. And yet that attitude is very, very widespread. People like you complain about the George Soros, so-called George Soros mm -hmm. DAs, people who've gotten money from the Open Society Foundation or whatever, uh, like a Larry Krasner in Philadelphia or uh, Chesa Bodine in San Francisco who's been recalled or whatever. And they complain about this. But those people got elected. They ran for office, Bragg, in Manhattan, ran for office on a platform of I'm going to decarcerate, I'm going to pull back, I'm going to lighten up on the punitive dimension of law enforcement. And people voted them into office. Uh, the say their names, Some you know, Brianna, you know, uh, Eric Garner, yeah, yeah. you know, these become iconic. They're culturally salient. You turn on the television for a TV show and you see... The, the plot of the show reflecting the sense of the oppressive presence of policing. Uh, when in fact, an argument could be made, you don't like mass incarceration, you want more police. That the, We're under-investing in policing relative to incarceration when you consider the entire mix of responses that we might make to the uh, problems of crime and disorder. Um, and you could, <laughs> you, <laughs> how many black lives were saved in New York City when that homicide rate went from that high of over 2,000 to under 300 uh, in the course of uh, a decade or so? How, how many black lives were saved? Don't the police no. deserve credit for that? They yeah. don't get it. They don't get it at the New York Times. They, they don't get it in uh, the uh, uh, movie and, uh, you know, entertainment industries, a depiction of life on the street and so forth and so on. So, long prelude by me to ask you the question the politics of anti-police animus especially in minority communities in american big cities set that against the reality of what the police are doing and what the real threats to black lives are how do you account for that yeah it's it's hard to and it's frustrating um you know i suspect that it has something to do with the fact that every generation wants to be seen as standing for something and what better thing to stand for than to stand against the man right against the power structure that's that's how we define our morality in this country everyone's gotta you know have a fight and if you're sitting on the sidelines silence is violence right uh, you know 
Um, and so I think that's that's a big part of, of why this continues to happen. But I also think, you know, yeah, people like Larry Krasner, Chester Boudin, Alvin Bragg, they got elected, um, but not with huge majorities. These are still very low salience elections, often in, you know, off-year elections, you know, not on cycle with the federal elections. You know, Larry Krasner, I think 17% of the eligible voters turned out in the Democratic primary to re-elect him recently. You know, I, I think people haven't quite yet caught on to the importance of some of these races, which is part of the brilliance of, of the Soros strategy over the last, you know, half decade um, in, in in sort of pursuing uh, reform through through the route of, of electing prosecutors, because it's just not a race that a lot of people pay attention to. I mean, I can't tell you how many calls I got after Alvin Bragg was elected and people say, I had no idea. It's like, well, you should have had an idea. It was right there on his website. Well, I didn't look at his website. I mean, Eric, Eric Adams won the primary. I thought everyone was kind of on the same page. It's like, you know, so, so our, our there are a couple things going on. One is I think our polity doesn't pay enough attention to some of these things. And so they're still catching up. There's some lag, but, but I do think that there is something to the idea that just culturally, you know, uh, it has become uh, sort of central to, you know, progressive identities that are acceptable in elite circles that you have to stand against, you know, the the power structure. And um, what's ironic about that is the degree to which, uh, you know, progressive elites fail to recognize that they are the power structure. Um, they're the ones wielding the power. They're the ones who have people in fear of speaking the truth. Um, they're the ones who can determine if and when somebody loses their job if they say the wrong thing. They're the ones who can keep people, uh, you know, off of uh, off of faculties if they have the wrong ideas. I mean, you know, so uh, yeah, I think it's 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 going to change eventually. At least I hope. I think the pendulum will swing back. Um, you know, but but the hope is that we learn from our history and every time that the pendulum swings past the point of equilibrium, it doesn't go as far as it did the last time and therefore it doesn't take as long to come back. Um, you know, what I, I hope we don't see is the kind of violent, you know, back and forth and backlashes that, that we've seen throughout history because that, that just doesn't do us any good. I understand that your father was a police officer in New York City. Yeah, he was. More than 20 what happened years. When you told so, him that you were thinking of following, you, yeah. you tell a story. You told him you were thinking of following in his footsteps. How, how did he take yeah. that? I mean, I didn't <laughs> even really put it that way. I, you know, for me, it was my own footsteps. I, you know, I was always fascinated by, by that, that world. I, you know, I think the fact that he was a cop when I was a kid had a lot to do with it, especially at that time, right? I mean, you know, I'm born in 1986, so, you know, late 80s, early 90s, Brooklyn is you know dangerous place. I, you know, I'm watching movies, you know, Charles Bronson, the whole thing. And it's like, wow, my dad is like part of this. And, you know, that was always fascinating uh, to me. And so, you know, I, I took the LSAT uh, and the NYPD exam my senior year of college, and um, I, I did well on both. And so it was a decision that I had to make. Do I, you know, become a New York City police officer? Um or do I go to law school? And, you know, I, I told my dad, hey, like, I did really well on this NYPD exam. You know, they give you a, a list number, it's called, based on your score in the cohort. And, you know, that determines the order in which you get hired. And my list number was one. So I got the highest score in the cohort. And I was very excited about this because I remembered my dad saying that his list number was like 14,000 or something like that. 
And so, yeah, I kind of, I broached it, you know, bragging a little bit and I expected to have a good laugh with him, but his face changed. He was, he was upset and frightened and concerned. Um, And this isn't, you know, recent, this is 2010. um, And, you know, what he said to me back then is what I think you'll hear a lot of cops say during exit interviews today, which is like, you know, you think you're going to go out there and save the world. And the reality is, is that any good thing you do will be immediately forgotten by the community the second that one of your colleagues does something that they don't like. God forbid you're eight years into this job and you get caught in a controversial use of force. You're now on the front page of every newspaper. The department throws you under the bus and now you lose your job having spent the last decade developing experiences that don't translate into any other line of work. What are you going to do then? You know, this was his this was his admonishment. You know, he, he basically threatened to never talk to me again. I, you know, he was he was very, very adamant that I not take what he saw was a, a major risk with with my life and career. Um, you know, he, he said, you know, you should just go to law school, avoid avoid this, you know, take a sort of job where people are actually going to say thank you at the end of the day. Uh, and this is a man who I know still cares about the work that he did. You know, I mean, he, he joined the NYPD in 1983, kind of the height of everything that was going wrong, um, you know, uh, and, and, you know, even over the period of safety that we experienced, we still had two close family friends lose their lives in the line of duty to an unarmed black man, I might mention. Um, we hear that phrase a lot in these debates, unarmed black man, um, as if the fact that someone's unarmed when they come into contact with the police means that they can't pose a deadly threat. Well, uh, a really good man named Bobby Parker lost a fight for his gun with an unarmed black man who took his life and then took the life of his partner, Patrick Rafferty, in 2004, September 10th, um, the anniversary just passed. So, you know, these are experiences that certainly color my work. Um, I think in the end, I probably made the right decision not becoming a cop. But I do worry about a world in which, you know, People with higher degrees of education, higher levels of psychological stability, more ambition, don't take that kind of job. I don't want it to become the kind of job where the only people who take it are those who feel like they have nothing to lose or less to lose. That's, you know, that, that's not going to produce good outcomes. What proportion of the NYPD are college graduates? A much higher yeah. one now. Um, I'd probably put it at over 50%. Um, but I'm guessing, you know, the NYPD many years ago adopted a requirement that you had to have 60 college credits in order to be eligible, uh, for employment. Um, you know, so that's like that's, two years, that's two years in associate's degree basically. And so a, a lot of officers just go ahead and, and finish their degrees in part because, you know, um, the, the, at least for a time, there was so much demand for that job that, Back when when I was uh, you know applying when I took the exam the lag time between when you took your exam and when you were likely to get hired was close to two years um, you know so you had some time to to go ahead and finish your degree and I think you know people who were ambitious about the future of their careers knew that they wanted to sort of climb the ladder and so it paid um, you know to pursue higher education also in part because the NYPD had programs that would pay for for that pursuit. If you did it while you were on the job, you know, at night, um, this is very different from the NYPD. My father joined, my dad dropped out of high school, you know, got his GED and, and became a cop. Um, you know, so 
and it's interesting because there is research showing, uh, for example, that, that police officers who have higher levels of education, particularly college degrees or higher, are much less likely to use force um, than uh, than police officers without uh, a college degree in the same situation, which, you know, uh, I think is important because we're in a moment in our history where we are demonizing a profession in a way that makes it much less likely that people with options will take the job. And that's exactly who you want to take the job if you care about these outcomes. And so, uh, you know, it's a bit, it's a bit ironic. Yeah. So I saw uh, your um, interview with Peter Robinson on Uncommon Knowledge. Um, and thanks, by the way, for coming out to Dallas to uh, join us yeah. for that old Parkland conference, which was a great event l- last May. Highlight of uh, my career, Len, for sure. To be in those <laughs> rooms with with people like you and Justice Thomas and to be on stage with uh, with Roland uh, Fryer and, and, and Judge Brown. I mean, yeah. So he said Roland did something that really struck me. He said, if you take because uh, he's done this study of the impact of federal investigations mm-hmm. of local police departments on crime, uh, Roland Fryer, and uh, in a paper joint with uh, Tanea Devi, mm-hmm. um, finds that uh, if uh, there is a viral incident uh, involving a police shooting and or killing, and uh, then that triggers a response of federal investigation, that the net effect of that is to lead to higher uh, crime in the subsequent uh, months and years because police being investigated withdraw and pull back and don't have as much encounter with citizens doing the kinds of things that would prevent crime from taking place in the first place. They're less aggressive. They don't make as many stops. They're not as responsive. Um, and whenever I uh, tell my lovely wife, who is a left of center political uh, junkie, uh, about this finding, she she uh, goes ballistic and says it's like they're going on strike. It's like the police are going on strike in place. They're yeah. refusing to work. They're public employees who are refusing to work. You know, damn them. If they were teachers going on strike, you right wingers. This is my old lady. You right wingers would be. You know, <laughs> we we're having a friendly right. exchange. <laughs> we love each other. Uh, we kiss and make up. You right wingers would be all over the teachers for withdrawing and not doing their job and sitting on their butts. Well, what about these cops? And I mean, I want to put the question to you. If Roland is right that police are electing to disengage to some degree because they don't want to do the kind of things needed to keep crime from happening because they would expose themselves potentially to risk and they think no one has their back, like your father says, that they're going to be hung out to dry. Um, uh, if their unions are uh, uh, trying to keep officers from being held accountable when they do make mistakes and making all kinds of excuses for them, if a thin blue line is uh, of solidarity among police officers is keeping those who are doing the right thing from being uh, uh, responsible in terms of reporting bad behavior by their fellows and so on like that, isn't the anti-police sentiment that you find someplace to some degree justified? Haven't the police officers to some degree brought this public uh, uh, suspicion upon themselves? No, uh, for a lot of reasons. One is that the suspicion has been there way before pullbacks and blue flus became a thing. But two, you know, I think they're mischaracterizing what's going on. These aren't police officers going on strike. They are responding 
I think, to a very legitimate risk, a risk that's unreasonable in their view. It's fear. It's not, it's not um, indignation. It's fear. It's fear that if I get out of my car here and investigate this person who looks suspicious, and it turns out that there's nothing going on and I'm wrong, now I risk being pictured as a racist. This is something that's going to contribute to this department's decline in the future because it's going to go down as a false positive, right? It's going to go down as, as just another example of, you know, police officer seeing, you know, let's say a, a, a you know, a, a, a black teenager and, and, you know, uh, acting yeah. on, on all the, you know, sort of, uh, racist stereotypes that we all are, are angry about. Right. So that there's fear. There's also fear that if this turns out to be legitimate and my hunch is right, and now I have to make an arrest and this person resists and I have to use force, that this might not look so good on camera. And if it gets picked up by the local paper and then by the New York Times, I might be hung out to dry. And there are a whole bunch of people saying, let's get rid of, you know, qualified immunity and let's, you know, make it easier to fire cops. I mean, I might lose my, I have a family. Maybe I don't take that risk. Doesn't mean I'm not going to respond to 911 calls or calls for help. It doesn't mean I'm going to ignore blatant criminal activity in my view, but am I going to do the things that I think we should want police officers to do to be proactive and actually sussing out criminal activity that's not obvious to the naked eye? Um, I think it's fear. And that fear matters because it's, it's a calculation that is driven by real phenomenon that we can control that's within our control whether or not we launch an investigation as a way to appease you know the people that we see as our main political supporters is within our control um and if you care about public safety more than you do about politics i think you read roland's paper and you come to the conclusion that hey maybe there's a better way to go about trying to get the results that we want and just you know saying, hey, we're going to go after these bad guys at a news conference that's going to be, you know, played on CNN and MSNBC um, isn't the best way to go about it, even if it is the best way to get people to make donations to, you know, your political party. Yeah, what this Roland says, he says, if we're going to reform, let's do it with the police, not on the police. Not to the police, right, yeah. Not to the police, yeah. Yeah, I think he's right. right. I think he's right. That's the case, uh, listeners, to that's the case for not decarcerating and not depolicing. Admirably put by Ralph Mangual, who is a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute, my colleague, and I hope someday to be able to say my friend. Indeed. Thank you, Ralph. Thank you. Thank you. This was this was great.